Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. We are in the process of building a human library of immigrant stories. Join us every week on Wednesdays for a new release. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an interesting episode. Today we have for you Janine Wiggins, who's currently in New Orleans, Louisiana area. Welcome, Janine. Hi, thank you for having me, Simone. It's our pleasure to host you here on our podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about your professional background and what you're currently doing for yourself? Yes, of course. So I am a federal resume writer. What that means is I help job seekers who are seeking employment with the federal government. And I also help military service members who are transitioning out of the military and they're going back to work in the civilian workforce or the government workforce. So I write resumes and provide career coaching for those individuals As far as my educational background and my career background, I uh, graduated with a bachelor's of science from the University of Mobile, and I'm currently in school right now at the University of Arkansas Grantham for my master's in business administration. So I should finish that next year. And I worked 13 years in the corporate world as a healthcare business analyst. Basically, I would help hospitals who are transitioning from a paper medical record system and help them transition into an electronic medical record system. So I did that for 13 years before I transitioned over into full-time entrepreneurship. Okay, wonderful. And what made you switch from corporate into the specific type of uh, work that you currently do? What's Is there a story behind that? Yeah, just a little bit of a story. So in the corporate sector, I was not getting paid my worth. And I also knew I wanted to go back to school. So going to school and being a full-time student and working full-time and also trying to do my business full-time, that just wasn't going to work out with my schedule and also being a wife. So uh, my husband and I decided that I would be able to make that transition, of course, with the help of God, to save up money and be diligent for at least three years before I transitioned. And I was able to make that switch over into full-time entrepreneurship, really because when you are an, an entrepreneur, you have your freedom. And that's one thing I was looking forward to uh, because I was a little bit restricted Uh, with trying to do my business and working full-time. And then now I can set the pay rate on my value and my earning potential. Um, So that's something that I really wanted to do. Um, After I finish my MBA program, I may go back into the workforce. I'm not sure yet, but we'll see what the future holds. Okay. Okay. I know you have quite a bit of a social media presence with your resumes by mean business. So I hope that's going well. Um, do you see a potential to switching to that potentially full-time? Um, yes. So my social media pages are doing well right now. I am on LinkedIn as Janine Wiggins, and then I'm also on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram as at resumes by Neen. 
I do enjoy interacting on social media and I do enjoy making content that teaches how to perfect your resume and also how to engage in your interviewing skills and just providing job seekers with empowerment on like motivational things and also just allowing them to be confident going into the application process for federal positions. But yes, I do engage a lot on those social media platforms. Right, right. And because that's how I came across you and your business, someone referred me to you. And yes. um, I know, yes, yes, that's how we got connected. And um, it, I know applying to federal jobs can be so daunting for a lot of people, kind of decoding the whole process of USA Jobs. And what even happens once you apply to a job can be a bit exhausting sometimes trying to figure it out. So I was happy that someone actually is in that niche of a resume preparation space because you find a lot of people mostly are with the corporate side of uh, resume writing. Yes, I agree. I'm so happy that we connected on LinkedIn and also Instagram. I decided to narrow down my niche just to federal because the federal sector is so different. In 2020, I got a certification. I'm a certified federal career coach and certified federal job search trainer. So that certification was an eight-week program, and it taught me just the ins and outs of the federal government, which I knew some already, but it really gave me some more insight because a lot of applicants Uh, they get a lot of rejections when they first apply to federal jobs. And it comes from things like not having your resume formatted correctly, um, not knowing which positions to actually apply for, because being eligible for a position is different than actually being qualified in the federal government. So you'll have veterans who may not be using their preference, and you'll have non-veterans who are applying for positions that are not actually open to them. So with the certification, I just learned so many things that I thought would be so resourceful for federal job seekers. And that's why I decided that I wanted to help uh, that demographic of individuals. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. I think I joined you on Instagram a few weeks back when you had, a, I think it was like a 15 or 30 minute session discussing negotiating while applying for a federal job. And prior to that moment, I literally thought you just were not able to negotiate coming into the federal government. And a lot of people I've connected with have said the same thing. Can you share a little about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So a lot of job seekers are unaware that you can negotiate your salary and other things like uh, working remotely and also your annual leave when you're first entering into the federal sector. So basically that process entails you apply for the job, you get referred, you'll have an interview. And then after the interview, if they decide to offer you a position, they will send you written notification of that. So once you get that notification, you would write them what's called an above minimum rate letter. And that basically is a salary negotiation letter. And in that letter, you just make sure that you position yourself in that letter to show your value and what you would be bringing into that role that would set you apart from the other candidates and you just define why you deserve a step up in grade. Because the federal government, they're always going to offer you the first step within whatever salary grade that they want to offer. So it's up to you as the job seeker to advocate for yourself and ask for more money. Now, of course, just because you ask, that doesn't mean that they're going to grant your request. But I always say it's better to ask because you have nothing to lose by just asking. If you don't ask, they're definitely not going to offer you anything. So always advocate for yourself as a job seeker. Right, right. There's this whole 
concept or phrase going around about leaving money on the table. And a lot of, I think I've done it over the years so many times, just because either I was uncomfortable with negotiating, I didn't know how to do it. You know, I'm sure I've left a lot of money on the table. (laughs) I agree with you. I know I have. When I first started in corporate, I just took what they offered me. I was excited to get a job. I didn't think anything of it. But then 10 years into the position, when my coworkers are making way more than me, I'm like, wow, I left a lot of money on the table. So now I really encourage job seekers to not leave anything on the table. Ask for what you want. The worst they can say is no. Right, right. I've come across some stories of people going in with an idea during the negotiation phase with, okay, I'm going to ask for this. And the employer sometimes giving them like way more than they thought they were going to be, they were potentially (laughs) able to get. So you just, you know, they, they have money put aside to negotiate. And a lot of times we just don't take advantage of that. So I'm so happy you're, you're stressing that or emphasizing that today. Thank you so much. Yes. And you're definitely correct. They know the biggest amount that they can give a new employee. So if you don't ask for anything, of course, they're an organization or an agency. They want to always save money. So if you don't ask, they're not going to offer it. Right, right. There's a posting going on around on social media here a few months back, and Mm -hmm. people were just outraged about this lady who basically said that she had a, a job interview and the person asked for lower than what was even available. And she ended up giving what they asked for, but there was so much more money available to them. And, you know, she didn't feel bad about it. And people were just so outraged. Wow. Yes. I think I saw that post as well. That's not something that she should be posting or that she should be proud of (laughs) that she actually was able to lowball an applicant. I really don't believe in that. I know they have a job to do, but we should at least be trying to look out for each other. Even if you are in an HR role, you should at least give somebody a wage that they can live on and be comfortable. Yes, no, absolutely. I call it unethical, really, because that's basically what it is. I mean, you have access to all the information, but yet you are willing to give somebody to lowball someone, right? And not give them what, at least the minimum, right? Right. Um, Then it's going to take this person years to even work their way up to the minimum of what that job would have offered them just because they didn't know. So I know there's a website out there called glassdoor.com that I've found helpful with just looking up salaries or ranges of salaries of different positions, just to give you an idea I didn't realize that they were practicing this unethical dealings with uh, people, literally paying them less than the minimum. I've come across so many stories and, um, and lately on social media, we've just been uncovering so much, but it's, it's sad to hear. Um, I'm just wondering over the years, what have I really left on the table? I know. I wondered the same thing because it, like you said, it is unethical. And then in the long run, you end up having employees who work somewhere for a long period of time and they're not making the wage that they deserve. So now you see a lot of uh, workers, they're called job hoppers. But in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that because if you can go somewhere else and start off at a higher rate, doing something you enjoy, you should definitely leave where you are. So if that's the route you have to take to gain more money in your job, then you just have to do what you have to do. Because these jobs, a lot of times they're not honoring longevity and loyalty to companies anymore. It's not like it used it like it was when like our grandparents worked and they stayed somewhere for 30 years. Nowadays, staying somewhere that long, if they're not adding value to you as a worker, you should definitely consider leaving and finding something else. Right, right. No, that's a great point you're making. 
I mean, loyalty to a company, you really have to make sure you're considering your best interests at all times because, you know, they're looking out for the best interests of that corporate environment and their stakeholders. Most importantly, their um, shareholders, right? And so if you don't look out for yourself, I mean, they really don't have any loyalty to you. I've heard that so many times, but I think it's now just making so much more sense to me in the last year or two that I've heard people talking about leaving how much money we've been leaving on the table. I just never considered it. I agree. I think social media, especially LinkedIn, is really a good platform where everybody can share their experiences and you're really seeing like trends and things that are happening in corporate and in federal that are just unethical. Right, right. Just really sad. I mean, we're edging at it and and trying to bring more awareness and empower people to use their voice to ask for what they deserve, you know. So hopefully through this conversation today, people listening will be encouraged to you know, seek the information that they need and make, and do your homework, you know, yes. whatever research you need to do and, and seek a coach like Neen if you need to sit down and find out what how to best prepare for your job applications and make sure that you're getting what you're worth. You you play for a degree, a master's, an undergrad degree, a master's degree, sometimes other t- levels of degree come with the, to the table with so much experience. Then you need to be paid what you're worth, I, you know, so seek the help that you need if you need to. Yes, I totally agree. And I'm willing and ready to help any of those job seekers. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So transitioning a little bit to your immigrant story, I think this platform exists to empower and educate immigrants about just living, working and surviving here in the United States. And particularly, I have found that you know, the immigrant mentality is such that people come in and they're so eager to work. I heard lately another story of an immigrant lady who was so happy to get a job because she was making more than her parents ever made. But do you know that she wasn't even making the minimum salary for that position? And she had been with this organization for years. Everybody came in, got promoted and left her in the same job. And she kept asking her boss to you know, work with her to help her get prepared for the next move. And the, the supervisor wouldn't. And apparently another person came in and she sought some advice and the person sought to hire the, her to another team and found out that this lady had been making way below the minimum over all these years she had been with this lady. Wow. And, and I find a lot of times the ready to work and excitement that immigrants have to be finally here in the U.S. and and the opportunities available to them, they end up just taking the first offer. And I think, you know, this whole lowballing thing may exist at a higher rate within the immigrant community because, you know, they're just so excited to be working and providing for their families. And the U.S. dollar has a lot of power compared to other currencies. Have you come across any stories like that? I haven't personally come across any stories like that, but I do know just as a whole, women of color tend to do what exactly what you were talking about and also immigrants as well. Um, I personally don't have a story of that, but when you're excited to get a job because let's say you've, you've been out of work for a long time, perhaps then you tend to just take the first thing that becomes available to you. But it always goes back to the negotiation process and it's up to you to ask. So I would just recommend that anybody, immigrants or especially women of color, we just need to ask for what it is we want because our counterparts are getting paid more than us. Right. And sometimes are able to afford the type of lifestyle that they want because they're making so much more. And this whole idea about not talking about salary uh, doesn't really benefit us as employees at all. You know, I remember being taught in a previous uh, job, you don't share your salary because it causes contention and people will hate you if you end up making more than they are. When you don't do that, I'm just realizing that on the opposite end, when you do share, and if the other person is willing to share with you, 
you can realize at, at times that you are probably being lowballed or that there's more money available to you. So we have to communicate about these things. Yes, I agree. Because even at my last job, they stress, do not tell your salary. Never tell what percentage of raise you got. However, of course, employees, they spoke among each other. And what we found out was that the people of color were getting like five to 10% raises. And then non-people of color were getting at least 10 to 12, sometimes 13% raises. And over a span of so many years, that makes a huge wage disparity. And it also brings disgruntled workers because you're doing the same exact job as somebody else with the same exact credentials, but for some reason, they're making way more money than you. I mean, that's not right at all. I'm sure they have hashtags out there. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure they do. Or I'll start one if there isn't one. Hashtag discuss your salaries, <laughs> right? Yes. We will all benefit from it. <laughs> yes, of course. I think so, too. I mean, they make a big deal like you're going to get fired if you discuss your salary. But that's nowhere in any company policy, at least not where I work. So it's just a scare tactic for them to continue practicing unethical raises and salaries. Right. And even if you can't do it in the work environment, I mean, people can talk after work. It is your time and space and your cell phone, you know, have conversations outside of work if you can't do it at work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. They cannot silence an employee. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So can you tell us a bit about your heritage, Neen, and uh, from where your family originate? If there's a story behind what brought your uh, family to the United States? Yes, I can. So I am Panamanian. My Both of my parents are from Panama and Central America. They were born and raised there. I was born there as well. However, we did come over to the United States because my dad, he worked as a merchant marine. So he traveled a lot and he decided that he wanted to bring my mom and myself at the time. I do have two younger sisters, but they weren't born at that time. They were born in the United States. Um, But he wanted to bring us over to the United States just to provide us a better life and safety. Uh, Panama had some government issues. He just wanted us to have a better life. So with his savings, he did bring us over and we came to New York at first. And I did have some family members that were in New York already. And then I remember probably when I was in the first or second grade, we went to Atlanta where they became naturalized citizens. And since I was so young, I didn't actually have to take the naturalization test. So I remember helping my parents study. And these were all like history questions that I learned in grade school because I was in uh, first grade, second grade. So I would help them study and quiz them. And I do remember being in the courthouse where they swore in as naturalized citizens. And I just automatically became a naturalized citizen because I was so young. But our experience living in New York was good because New York is very cultural. But we did move down to Alabama, which is where I am now. And I remember just somewhat of fear, like talks of fear, because Down here is not as cultural. Well, it wasn't back then. So they really didn't know what to expect. But my father got a position at a company called WLO. I don't think it exists anymore, but it had to do with providing Morse code to the merchant marines. So since that was his industry, that was a great starting point for him to work. And he lived in Mobile, Alabama for quite a number of years. I do still uh, live down here right outside of Mobile with my husband in Daphne, Alabama, but they have since moved to North Carolina. Our experience, I just remember when they were speaking in Spanish, we would get different types of looks. And 
to me, it's not funny, but just thinking back that people at the time were not sensitive to different cultures because speaking another language should not put somebody on alert. So I just remember in being in the South and even going through like a McDonald's drive through the cashier would say, can you order again? We can't understand you. So I would have to order the food since I really don't have a thick accent of how my parents speak. So I normally would be the one ordering the food. But just thinking back, it's just so different that even now in 2022, we still have racial issues against immigrants, um, people of color. And it's, it's just unfortunate. But that is my story on how we came over to the United States. Wow. From New York to Alabama. I am close to New Orleans. I'm about an hour and a half from there, but I am in Alabama. Okay. Wow. I recently also spoke to someone from the DR who is in, I think she is in Alabama, about an hour plus from the Atlanta area where we are. We're planning to actually go visit her. So let's see how how close we get to you. I'd love to meet you in person. Yeah. I'm about 30 minutes from the beaches on the Gulf Coast. So if she's an hour and a half from Atlanta, it takes me about four and a half to five hours to get to Atlanta from here. Okay. So you're on the other side. You're a bit, a bit further uh, away from where she might be. Yes. I'm at the Southern point. (laughs) Yeah. But I would love to put you guys in touch. She's also Afro-Latina. I think you may identify as Afro-Latina, right? Yes. I can identify um, as Afro-Latina. She started a podcast, Afro-Latina in the South or something like that. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd I'd love to share that with you. She's um, trying to build community. She's a Spanish teacher down there. She shared her experience of being in the South and what it's like being a Spanish teacher and building community and finding relationships, being a person of color, being an Afro-Latina more specifically, and trying to connect with other people of color. And the fact that she speaks Spanish, it oftentimes is viewed as strange or, you know, uh, people are not as welcoming because it just seems so different for a Black person to be speaking Spanish. What was your experience? Right. So in grade school and even all the way up through college, I didn't feel like I really identified with the Latinos, because I am brown, like my family spoke Spanish, and I do understand more Spanish than I speak. The Latinos didn't really understand that you could be brown and still be Latino. And then the African Americans, it's weird that you're brown and you know some Spanish. So I always felt like I was in between or just on an island by myself uh, because neither party really understood. So it's just weird to be in a combination of the two. So, but now as an adult, I do know who I am. And, you know, when you're growing up, you're trying to figure out who you are. So as an adult, like I just embrace both cultures and I feel like I can fit in, in either party without having to change who I am. I'm just myself. Awesome. Awesome. Showing up as your authentic self. I love it. I love to hear it. So I come from an English-speaking country, but learned Spanish from seventh grade in high school. I have a degree in Spanish, and I also have gotten weird eyes, looks, or impressions from people from different parts of society, right? Mm -hmm. But we're spread across the globe. So French-speaking Blacks, Spanish-speaking Blacks, perhaps it's more ignorance of not knowing your your world history and so forth. But I've had to deal with that myself. And I don't identify as Latina, but I'm a Spanish-speaking English Caribbean person. I've I've gotten some of those too and not know how to even interpret or deal with it in the past. But I am coming into my authentic self and embracing that, you know, it is a part of who I am. And I bring that value to the table in every room that I enter, you know? Right. I agree with you. It is a journey because honestly, my mostly negative experience have been with people of African descent who don't understand uh, my family's culture or say that I speak too proper for them. I never understood that. Like we just, 
my parents taught us, the kids, English as our first language. So they taught us to speak properly. But I guess since I didn't know all the slang, I couldn't really fit in with them. So it's just just weird. (laughs) I know you understand. I get it. I get it. It has been that same. And and we have the conversation among other Jamaican children as well as how it, for some reason, other Blacks uh, here do not equate speaking properly as, as being a Black trait. And right. so you're, la- you're labeled as if you're, you're speaking, you're trying, if you speak properly, you're trying to be white or are right. trying not to be Black. It's so it's really sad um, because in order to operate in the business world and to communicate with people of, around the world, you need to be able to use the English language properly so people can understand you well and, and for you to garner your respect in the business space. So I just Correct. don't quite understand. You can't use slangs or I don't even I'm not quite sure what it's called. Is it Ebonics? when you go out of your own little circle of friends with other people. So you have to be able to speak standard English at a certain level to be able to get along with and operate in the business world. Right. I agree with you. It's like a full circle moment for me because now that I write resumes and help job seekers, now people come to me to help them articulate their value. And it's like, well, I thought I wasn't good enough because I spoke properly. But now you need me to either write or coach you through how to articulate yourself in an interview or write your resume. So it's like a full circle moment. I'm very grateful that my parents taught us correct English and really stressed that, you know, to get through life, you will need to speak clearly. So just those different stereotypes coming from other groups of people, they really don't matter now because to be successful, you do have to speak well and communicate well. Communication is so important in order to get along with and, and to do business and and to build relationships. I mean, you have to communicate well. And I mean, you lose so much if you're, you start speaking and people aren't able to understand what you're saying. So Right. And I know in Panama, you know, you guys grew up being truly bilingual because you learn English in school as well as Spanish. Is that correct? I didn't actually go to school in Panama. I did go to school in the United States because I was about three years old when we came over. But yes, my parents are fully bilingual. They learned Spanish and English in school. So yes, that's correct. I'm sure those people who have both and speak it comfortably are benefiting because it is an asset, you know, to be hired by a company when you speak both languages comfortably and you can communicate well with their clients or customers. Yes, that's um, correct. For everybody who's listening, don't listen to the naysayers and about it being a negative trait that you speak Spanish or that you speak English properly. It's an asset and just use it for that. So if no one has ever told you, I'm telling you now, Neen is telling you. It's so important. Listen to her stories. You know, the fact that I had Spanish additionally on my resume always caused me to stand out among everybody else. And so be proud of what you bring to the table and use it to your advantage unapologetically. Yes, I totally agree with that. Be proud of your heritage. Be proud of how you speak and use that to your advantage because it's a blessing. It's not a curse. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I know you left early, but what was it like growing up here in a Panamanian culture as an Afro-Latina with your parents being immigrants straight from Panama and probably very culturally defined as Panamanians, right? The way they cook, the way they eat and, and, and do things. What was it like in your household and how did you work out and balance that with growing up in the United States? from three years old. So my mom and my dad, they're very traditional. My dad always went to work. Um, My mom raised myself and my two younger sisters. Just traditionally, we would sit, she cooked every day. That's one thing that really stands out. And we ate dinner together. Um, So my mom cooked American food and Panamanian food, like rice and peas. And then, but then we would eat 
KFC chicken sometimes <laughs> on paydays. But growing up in the household, they always stressed to us to grow up and get an education. And then my dad had us, we helped him with his church because not only was he in the merchant marine business, but he got called to full-time ministry. So he was a pastor and he pastored a Hispanic ministry. So we were exposed to other Hispanic cultures there as well. So that was our community. And then just growing up, they just showed us both sides of Panamanian culture and also American culture. Um, Because my grandfather, he worked in the canal zone. So he had Americanized traits, even though he was from Jamaica, actually, but he lived in Panama. And my grandmother was Panamanian. So it's just a mixture of cultures. And growing up, I really didn't know that we were different until I started going to public school and hearing how other people spoke and seeing how other people, like the things they ate. And then I was like, well, maybe we are a little different, but I just embraced the culture. Awesome. Awesome. Um, And I'm sure you're having your sister and, and your church community Starting in New York, I'm, I'm sure probably provided a bit more of a support for you to embrace who you are. I can imagine being in the South, it was a bit more difficult than being in New York. That's awesome that you are embracing who you truly are and that your parents had a space to be able to express this as well. Yes, I'm sure they experienced different forms of prejudice. But as far as being a child, you know, children, we're resilient. So I guess I just adapted with the culture of public school and just coming back home. Our home was very education focused. So I really didn't have a lot of time to just go and be with friends. Like we went to school, we came home, did our homework, ate dinner together and went to sleep. That's really the story of myself and my sister's And I did go to college down here in the South at a Christian university, but that's probably when I was exposed more so to, okay, so this is what people do when they're having fun and doing different things because our family was just close knit. So we just did everything together. Um, I didn't really go off with friends, but I have met, I did meet some good friends in college that I'm still friends with today. So did your parents talk about what their experience was like when they first came over, they're older, and, you know, it can be difficult adjusting for older people moving to a new culture. Did they ever share any difficulties or challenges or experiences they were having? Um, They didn't share too much. I mean, they were probably my age now. I'm 36, and they were probably in their earlier 30s uh, when we came over. I feel like they adapted. I know my dad always had a had employment here. And uh, we encountered different people that just helped us through um, being connected to different churches. And my mom, she worked for one of the churches that we went to, uh, Cottage Hill Baptist Church. She worked in their nursery. So just the church family, they were extremely nice and not that they took us in, um, but they were just good friends to my parents and they're still friends with them today. So we didn't really, if they encountered any issues, I don't particularly know of them, but I'm sure they had some type of issues moving to the South from Panama to New York and then New York to the South. Right, right, right. They probably just probably protected you guys from some of those um negative experiences or, you know, I can imagine so because, you know, my my older family members don't discuss them either. Right. So aside from, you know, coming here to the United States, making sure you get an education and being successful, was there any other pursuit that you had, you, your sister, your parents? Did you guys talk about that? And and what was it that you guys wanted out of living and uh, being here in the United States? Oh, yes. Of course, it was always taught to work for what it is you would like. And I did 
get married at 22. Um, so my husband is from Alabama and uh, we are homeowners. So I'm glad that we were able to do that, especially me being part of that and not being from this country originally. Um, home ownership is something that they say is the American dream, but it is very hard to get a home in this country just because of the processes, whether you're American or an immigrant. So I'm very proud of that. And one of the things that I always did want to do is pursue a higher education. So I am doing that now with getting my master's degree. My parents just, they support us as long as we are doing what we're supposed to do and just reflecting the values that they taught us. They were always very supportive of anything that we would like to do. Are they still living here in the United States or did they return to Panama? Oh, no, they still live here. My dad is a Spanish teacher in North Carolina, uh, right outside of Charlotte. And my mom also works for the school system in right outside of Charlotte as well. They are still living in the United States. So, Neen, could you tell me a little bit about any opportunities, whether it be scholarships, people, or, you know, just situation that came about, situations that may have come about to help you be successful, finish your undergrad degree, now doing your master's, working with a company for several years? What are some opportunities that you were blessed with? Um, so, in high school, I did keep a 4.0 average. Um, so I did get a scholarship to the University of Mobile and I went there for undergraduate school for four years and I obtained my bachelor's of science in communication. And then once I graduated, I just started applying for jobs. I honestly wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with that degree, but I did get a call back from a local business uh, who was doing a mass hiring. So once I interviewed there, I landed that role and I just ended up staying there. It was a position where I traveled with the company and I helped teach at different hospitals and teach on the software. So I ended up staying there for the 13 years. Um, and then now that I'm in school for my master's, I have been blessed to be able to go through the military. I'm not in the military, but my husband is retired military. So I was able to go to school using his military benefits. So that's a blessing as well, that I don't have to incur any uh, student loan debt to be in school. But just along the way, I just feel like uh, God has really blessed my family to just have different opportunities. And for all, for me and my sister's to go to school. Wonderful. That's great. That's great. Were there any big challenge or adjustment that you felt like you needed to make? You know, I know you mentioned like just building rapport with people just because you spoke Spanish was a bit challenging, but did you find anything about the American culture just so different um, from the Latina Panamanian culture that you know, it was just challenging when you were growing up to adjust to? Um, not really growing up. I didn't really find too much challenging just because I was so young when I came over here. So it was easier to adapt. But I did notice that like once you graduate high school in America, uh, the parents, they say you're a grown up and they kind of like kick most of their kids out the house versus my parents did not do that. I did choose to go to college and live on campus, but if I wanted to stay home, they were, you know, the Latina, Latino culture, you stay home and basically until you get married. So in the American culture, I just found it a little odd that all my friends were turning 18 and they were like, well, I have to get out the house now, even though I did want to get out the house <laughs> just so I could like be an adult, which there's nothing out in these adult streets looking back except working. But I found that <laughs> my parents <laughs> were different and they really embraced. If I wanted to stay home, I could have. So I think that's one of the biggest differences that I see between 
Latino culture and American culture is that once you graduate, like there's a rush to get out the house versus Latino culture, they tend to stay home a little bit longer. Right. And it's similar to the Caribbean. And I want to speak more intimately about Jamaican culture. That's the same. My dad, in fact, was telling me just yesterday that he stayed home until he was in his 30s. He was at home with his parents. And so you find that a lot, too, in other cultures around the world. I know in France, it's pretty popular. I have a friend living there and and we would talk about these stories about students who are still living at home with their parents long into their working career. In fact, I think the government actually, if I remember clearly, subsidizes parents to allow their children to remain at home because of sometimes the lack of employment, right? And, you know, once somebody gets employed, I think they prioritize the older generation staying in the workforce. And so sometimes they subsidize the children staying with their parents, right, for the economy to function. And so you find that to be a lot outside of the United States. So I I think that might be the culture of just moving away at 18 or the minute you can earn some money to probably be one of the only places around the world I think that you'll find that. I think African cultures as well, people stay home until they are able to get married and move on and, and, and be subsistent for themselves, you know? Right. And I agree. Looking back, if I had to redo it, I, I would have stayed home a little longer. I was just in a rush. And I think that was like the American culture influencing me. But the longer you can stay home, you just have an opportunity to save money, not incur any debt, probably not incur like credit cards, you just are a little bit more protected so that you can start off your adult life a little bit, not faster, but more established is what I would say. Yeah, because sometimes uh, these young people aren't really mature enough to handle the freedom that comes with being on their own. So they get themselves in a lot of issues at times. And um and debt as well. And that can really set you back if you're not mature to handle that freedom that comes with being on your own. So, you know, just caution anybody who's listening. You know, if it's there's an opportunity to stay home and save, there is no shame in doing that. It, it, does, it is wisdom to calculate the cost of being on your own versus what you can achieve with remaining at home a little bit longer until it's a better season for you to move out. Listen to our our own experiences and what we've, our lived experiences here in the United States. It can be quite challenging. Yes, I agree. Have you been able to show up in your workspace or in other social settings as your authentic immigrant self? Um, do you find that you've had to morph into something else in order to integrate? Do, do you feel like you have you've had to just become more Americanized faster? Or do you feel like you can express your your Latina, Afro-Latina, your Panamanian cultural self at work and elsewhere? Um, I feel like I am my authentic self. I do feel like I am more Americanized just because I was so young when we left the country. And when we moved to Alabama, it was just myself and my parents. And I didn't really encounter too many more Panamanians here. So culturally, I do feel like I'm more (laughs) Afro than Latina. I always make that joke with my friends because they're like, well, you don't seem like you have too much of the heritage. I was like, I do. It's just growing up, I was more Americanized. Um, But wherever I go, I do show up as my authentic self. I don't, I think the term is code switch. I just show up as myself. So I don't feel like I have to change who I am to fit in with different groups of people. If you accept me, you just accept who I am. And I'm not willing to change who I am for just to fit in. Right. That's good. Good to hear. Good to hear it. Do you have any advice in particular that you would share for new residents, new immigrants who are here trying to adjust and integrate into the American culture about how to do so successfully? Again, I was so young, so I couldn't really speak from being an adult 
coming over here and having to adjust. With anything, I would say look for resources and stick to those who would help, who are willing to help you and aren't trying to get something from you for the help that they provide. And just to work hard and save your money and make sure you build your credit and just learn how the American ways are so that you're able to, like over here in America, everything is built off credit versus in our countries, mostly people pay things, pay for things in cash. Here, even though I do believe in paying for things with cash, an immigrant that's coming over, they would still have to build some type of credit, like when it comes to like purchasing a home or potentially purchasing a car. So I would just suggest that they learn how business functions in America so they can move forward and adjust with it. Wonderful. Thanks for that. So remind us, Neen, how do people find your services? Of course. So if you would like to solicit our services, you can visit resumesbyneen.com. That's R-E-S-U-M-E-S-B-Y-N-E-E-N.com. Or you can find me on social media on uh, TikTok and uh, Facebook and Instagram at Resumes by Neen. And then just my name, Janine Wiggins on LinkedIn. But any service that you would like to start and actually book, uh, we do prefer that you go to the website to book those services. Okay. So resumesbyneen.com. Yes. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure hearing your story here on the Immigrant Experience, Neen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Wonderful. So join us again for another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America. And be sure to look out for Neen's business. And if you may need her services, go to her website, resumesbyneen.com. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.